My name is Talia Smith, and you're listening to Season 2 of Once Upon a Time, a Storytelling Podcast. This season, my friends and I will be telling stories that will leave you spooked, uneasy, or even on the edge. Join us for Once Upon a Time, a Storytelling Podcast, Season 2. This episode was recorded in Maryland and New Jersey and tells us the horrifying story of a weeping woman. Enjoy! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, our guest is Nicole, who is Cat Lady Supreme and owner of Way Too Much Red Lipstick. I am so excited to have Nicole on the podcast today. She's a great friend. A wonderful person, and she's going to be telling quite the spooky story. So, Nicole, can you start off by telling us what the story we'll be sharing is and three fun facts about it? So, the story today that uh, we're going to be talking about is one of my favorite, favorite uh, folklores of all time, and it is La Llorona. It has its origins all over Central and South America. And the Southwest fun facts about the story is that the earliest known mention of La Llorona was in the 1800s by Mexican poet Manuel Carrillo. But we know that its spoken history goes back much, much further. And also recently, uh, which I thought was pretty cool, horror legend, I call him a horror legend, James Wan produced a film called The Curse of La Llorona, which uses, you know, the folklore of La Llorona as a basis for the film. And I was very excited to see that because James Wan is, he started the whole Saw franchise. So to see him get behind this project, I was very excited. That's so cool. I'm excited to talk more about the adaptations and how people have taken this folktale and really spun it to the modern day. This is going to be exciting. So for those who are unfamiliar with La Llorona, um, I know I certainly was before we started talking about this. Can you introduce the topic a little bit more? Of course. I'd love to. So the legend of La Llorona has haunted women, men, and children for, for generations. Its legacy is enduring all across Latin America. And, you know, there is not one person that I know, especially my family, that hasn't had like an experience of, you know, being afraid of the woman in white who supposedly haunts bodies of water. And it is one of my favorite spooky tales to tell for, you know, spooky season. What does La Llorona mean? Is it a word in Spanish? Yeah, so La Llorona, it's the direct translation of it would be the female version of the crier. Okay. Um, since the protagonist, <laughs> the woman at the center of it, um, <laughs> the folklore is that you can you can hear her crying, and that's how you know oh. that she's near. Ooh. Okay. Spooky. I love it. So obviously all season we've been telling some spookier tales, um, but why this story? What about this story makes it a good fit, do you think, for 2020? And um, 
when were you introduced to it? So I was introduced to the story uh, when I was younger, kind of like every other Hispanic child. So it's, it's a story that I grew up with and it's a story that um, I've known my entire life. So now that I'm older and one of my things that I love is like, I love to like analyze film and literature. And now that I've had my like life experience and education, I thought that this would be the perfect time to kind of look back with a more analytical lens and see what this story what, what what's the what are the larger implications of this story yeah like i know also as well for me i don't know if i was just a weird kid but i was obsessed with weird new jersey like learning all about the spooky folklore of new jersey so i kind of i think that's kind of just always been my thing i love i love learning about spooky folklore that's fantastic i feel like we've mentioned we might not have but i feel like weird new jersey has been like maybe it's an internal underlying theme we've maybe just emily and i have spoken about it a lot but weird new jersey has definitely come up in a lot of conversations and it's so funny because i never heard of anything weird new jersey until i moved there for college just a funny thing to throw out there yeah, New Jersey has like a rich history of just weird and spooky things, and we're all really proud of it. So, th- but this story doesn't take place in New Jersey, right? Where does this story take place mostly? Or for you, like when you heard this story, because like you said, it's a folk tale, so I'm sure every family has its own like rendition of it. But for you, where did this story take place? Um, I would say for me, there's no like particular like location that it took place like like i can't pinpoint a place and say this is where this story took place it's more it's more of like the way that it's told it's more of a cautionary tale okay when you, when you hear those types of stories there's no real like location to them more of like this is kind of a general thing and it can apply anywhere it can be anywhere it can happen anywhere so let's get started let's tell the story of la llorona and if you can begin it with my favorite phrase once upon a time once upon a time there was a beautiful woman who fell in love with a you know, just think the most handsome ranchero that you could ever think. He was beautiful. He had money. He was the perfect man. And that's the first red flag. (laughs) (laughs) And in many, in many versions of the story, the beautiful woman is often named Maria. And so Maria marries well she falls in love with this rich ranchero and marries him and as a result of this marriage she bears him two children you know everything is going great everything is going fine but one day maria has this like sneaking suspicion that something is wrong and she sees her husband with another woman 
which is dum 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 dum. Once you said he was perfect, I was like, he's probably <laughs> he's probably gonna cheat on her. <laughs> probably, and he did, and he did. Of um, course, Ugh. and he did. So Maria, she just was so beside herself, like she was distraught and like she just didn't know what to do and she was so angry and she didn't know how to control that anger so in a fit of rage yeah. she drowned her two children in a river oh no and after that she immediately regrets it but she's unable to save them and she's so consumed by this guilt that she drowns herself as well thinking that once she drowns herself, she's going to be able to be with her children in the afterlife. But unfortunately, she is unable to enter the afterlife without her children. So Maria has been doomed to walk this earth just crying and looking for her children. Because she's in that weird spot of like, she can't join the afterlife, but she's not alive. So she's just been destined to roam roam the earth for all of time crying about her children that she dropped oh my gosh ah talk about a terrible purgatory so so besides just the general like you know murder of the children what was the cautionary tale like don't murder your children what was the part that spooked you as a kid when this story is told it's typically told as a way to caution children from, you know, being bad and wandering too far away from home. Because the, the <laughs> legend is if you get close, like too close to bodies of water, like if you're, if you're wandering after dark, she will find you. Or if you're playing near water she will find you and take you because, you know, she drowned her children in a river. So it is told that she haunts uh, bodies of water. And if you are a bad child and you are wandering around a body of water, then she will come and take you. And they say that you can hear her because she's weeping and she wears a white gown, like a white dress and she's very wet um so yeah it's at the very basis of it it's meant to it's meant to scare children but you know once we go a bit further into it when we kind of look at it in a larger socio-cultural lens there's a lot of ways that there's a lot of ways that you can look at it and how this you know this one folklore has has a much larger meaning when it comes to how we police women and what it means to be a woman in Hispanic and Hispanic society. I'm loving this. I forgot to mention this earlier, but one of my favorite um, things when it comes to horror in general is this thing called monster theory and what monster theory is it's a way of looking at horror as a way how it mirrors our our own cultural unease that makes sense like because we talked about frankenstein a little bit well we had a whole episode dedicated to frankenstein Mm -hmm. closer to halloween so if you haven't listened to that yet 
listeners, you should check that out after you finish this episode. And we talk about how Frankenstein's monster Mm -hmm. represents grief and Mary Shelley's like inner life and how it's way more than just being a monster. So I think that's, I think monster theory in that is really interesting. And I never really, before this season, I never really kind of stopped to consider that. So how can you relate that theory to, to this story? Yeah. So in this story, from the research that I've done a lot of it and what I think is that like Yorona represents, you know, how women are not supposed to behave towards their children. And and also it's it's told in like a way that um, you know, you don't wanna be like this woman. Yeah. It teaches that, you know, no matter what sacrifice a woman has to make, no sacrifice is too big for your children. So Maria is represented in the story as a bad mother because she would sacrifice her feelings of rage in order for her to, you know, put her children first and obviously not kill them. Not condoning, right. <laughs> not condoning the, uh, the killing of the children, but uh, right, we're very anti-murder here on yeah. this podcast. Let's just make that clear. <laughs> yeah. in, in looking at it in the context of uh, Latin yeah. American society, looking at how, women are almost we are pressured and expected to sacrifice and suffer for our families in ways that those pressures aren't expected of in men Um, and also the themes of infidelity as well are very much present um, within that story and also and in hispanic society infidelity is very hush hush but it's almost accepted like it's just it's accepted as like a thing that happens and women are just supposed to grin and bear it that's really interesting because like the first thing that like the major thing is that he cheats on on her i think i even did i villainized him he gets what he has coming to him like i don't tolerate that stuff so it is really says a lot when the the woman is is villainized i mean obviously murder aside but the but villainized after being a victim of something like that. Yeah. And, you know, there's just so much policing of women's behavior within Hispanic society that when we look at a story like La Llorona and we tell those stories, it's like immediately we're siding with the man, like this poor man, he did nothing wrong, da 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 da. But you know, really, we should be looking at like it's such a small story, but there's so much that we can take from it. What we can take from that story is like just the expectations that we put on Hispanic women to be the ultimate caretaker and sacrifice, you know, sacrificial lamb. Like we put down our lives for our families in ways that aren't expected of men it almost reminded me of um i don't know if you ever read this book but it's called the awakening by kate chopin i have not tell me about it and i, I could get it <laughs> i could get into that go for it came out in 1899 so it's a bit old and it basically it was very controversial at the time because it was telling the story of this woman who was you know struggling 
with the pressures put on her to maintain traditional standards of femininity and motherhood. Mm. And it was so controversial because it, it was this woman named Edna. She was the main character. Um, she, okay. you know, was kind of bucking tradition. And, but in that story, most people see her as the villain, as the person who's doing wrong because she doesn't want to be a traditional wife and mother. And that story, I was, when I was doing the research for La Llorona, that was a story that yeah. I was reminded of because these traditional notions of motherhood and femininity and all that stuff, it can be a lot to bear. And so I feel as though La Llorona is the way that we almost scare other women. (laughs) We scare other Hispanic women into into conforming to those traditional notions of uh, motherhood and femininity because we'll show the story and we'll be like if you don't you know if you're not a good woman then this is what happens like do you think learning this story like this story specifically or stories like it did it have an effect on you growing up did you think like well if i don't do this like i'm gonna end up like la llorona and just haunt the waters for me this story when i was younger just really represented like i shouldn't go out at night or else i'm gonna encounter her and she's gonna drag me to the afterlife but hey that's like still talking about just like sexism in general like women tend to fear going out at night anyway like another thing that I could see I just see so many parallels to how I grew up too like I'm half Italian and I was raised Catholic and sometimes there are a lot of cultural parallels that you can see and specifically like sexism frankly and I took a couple of Italian film courses at, at college and you see so many of them have to deal with like infidelity, men cheating on their wives. And it's always bothered me because they always victimized the the male protagonist. And it was always like the woman was either degraded in some way or was shown as being significantly less than her ex in some way. So it's, you know, it's just sucks. So like, well, Yorona is is a folktale from like hundreds of years ago, but the sentiments seen in it are very relevant all sorts of ways. Exactly. Like I grew up with my mother. She herself was a bit traditional, but not in the way that she raised me. Like she raised me to be very much like independent and like, uh, she kind of, she, she was not traditional in raising me in that sense. She encouraged me to you know, see the world and, you know, don't fall into this traditional lifestyle um, because, you know, you know yeah. so much more out there. So she's, she kind of raised me with that mentality. I was never really someone who grew up with that, you know, that way of thinking of like, oh, you have to adhere to these certain standards or else you're not going to find a husband. <laughs> so the story for me was really just a, you know, kind of, it's just a spooky a spooky folklore, but this story has has a much larger sociocultural implication. And I think now that I'm older, I've had the I've been able to really look back at it and really you know go over it with <laughs> a fine tooth and comb. And it actually, when I was doing the research for it, there's actually so much literature 
out there that supports that La Llorona is really, you know, besides being the spooky folklore, it really is a commentary on traditional motherhood and what is expected of women when they become mothers. Even the name Maria, my brain goes to like the Bible and, and and Mother Mary and she is the ideal woman. She is like the virgin mother, like she's perfect. It has to be intentional that that was the name that they chose, whether subconsciously or consciously, this quote unquote horrible mother you know, has that biblical connection in a way. And while Maria is a common name, it still has those, I don't know, implications. You definitely have a point there because there was something that I was reading that backs up that point where uh, I would say all women, but in the context of Latin America, you know, there is that uh, complex of like the Virgin Mary and like the Mary Magdalene uh, complex, (laughs) you know? Yes. (laughs) And how the Virgin Mary is the ideal to which as the kind of like the the ceiling is like the ideal that we should aspire to be whereas mm-hmm. you know the Mary Magdalene is like what we what we shouldn't be and also like where we will end up if we don't rise to that ideal of the virgin mary and so you know this literature suggested that la llorona kind of encompasses this in between space yeah we are unable to achieve the status of the Virgin Mary, but we don't want to fall down to that level of Mary Magdalene. Um, right. Nothing wrong. <laughs> nothing wrong with Mary Magdalene. But, <laughs> no, but no, what's really interesting about Mary Magdalene is yeah. I've been, you know me, I'm yeah. I'm a dork, and sometimes I go on these like research benches, and I was really interested in learning more about that. Virgin Mary, Mary Magdalene parallel. And what was interesting to me is that I learned that that parallel is a relatively recent one. The biblical story of Mary Magdalene is that she was like the a woman of the night for I don't know, keeping a PG. Um, <laughs> she was a woman of the night and and she's been criticized a lot in I would say more modern contexts for being a sinner and if but if you go and you you kind of do a little bit of of theological digging you see that that's not actually who she was that's actually a different biblical character i'm quoting wikipedia but i do have better sources than wikipedia they just say it very concisely but don't worry i'll cite i'll cite better sources than that but mary magdalene has the reputation in western christianity as being a repentant, loose woman. However, these claims are not supported by the canonical gospels, which at no point imply that she had ever been a loose woman or in any way notable for a sinful way of life. The misconceptions are likely arose due to a conflation between Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, who anoints Jesus's feet. So as early as the third century, this kind of became that trope. So I think it's interesting that 
I don't know where I'm going with this. This is a tangent. Thanks, Nicole, getting me on my <laughs> on my tangent. It's definitely an an interesting binary that we see. Our modern society is so in the black and the white, and we have the Mary Magdalene, Virgin Mary, and it's kind of baseless. It's not even based in the Bible like it's supposed to be, and it's just like. It's just misogyny. It's all just misogyny, and all it's so frustrating. Misogyny. Um, but I think <laughs> what I just what I wanted to touch on too was something that I find really interesting. I think this story does a really good job of showing how stories weaponize women's emotions. Yes. So, like I said in the story, she was so enraged that she drowned her children, and. You know, I know that this this motif of a woman being driven to commit a heinous act is, you know, that's a common that's a common motif that we see in in horror movies all the time. So again, it kind of goes back to that that policing of of women's behaviors, and in a way, it almost scares you into not wanting to really feel your emotions or really explore your emotions because of all the bad that can happen wow yeah that's such a great point too like even her name meaning like to cry is that being represented as automatically like a weakness or um something evil something as natural and necessary as crying did you Mm -hmm. ever feel did you ever feel that in your life experience that crying was seen as a weakness for you? Oh, 100%. Definitely. I mean, it was, you know, a bit more socially acceptable for, um, for me to cry. It's not a woman, but it still Mm -hmm. was like, you know, kind of have to grin and bear it. Like, like, why are you crying? (laughs) It's almost as though like we as women are just, we're just expected to be happy at all moments of life either we're super happy or we're kind of given that free pass. And I put it in quotations. Um, we're kind of given that free right. pass to be slightly emotional because of, you know, whatever feminine time of the month that we're going through whatever hormonal stuff. But even that is not taken seriously. I was raised in a very feminine environment. I was never really concerned growing up about I don't know my emotions I have a sister and I was you know my, my family is just very overly emotional in general it's lovely very theatrical group but I did realize like when I was in college and I was around more masculine energy I felt very self-conscious about showing any kind of emotion I think that was definitely not something that was instilled by my family but instilled by maybe the world around me that being emotional was seen as weak and I didn't want men specifically to think I was weak. I wanted them to think I was strong or stronger than they were. I don't know. Just going through some internalized misogyny here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, um there's just so there's just so many ways that our behaviors are dictated by the unspoken social rules around us. Yeah. Absolutely. It's really crazy to to think about that, um, how different stories that you hear when you're a little can have 
you know, you think back at it later and you're like, oh, wow, that actually was saying something a lot deeper. And I think it's a testament to oral history and like folktales, especially um, that they have they have so much power in our lives. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about La Llorona as a folktale. You said it's it's mostly um, in Latin American culture, but do you think all Latin American cultures, is it relegated to like a specific region? Like where would you say this story is has its most relevant? Where, where did the story kind of come about? Well, traditionally, I would say that this story is most predominantly aligned with um, Mexican culture. That's kind okay. of like where where you see it, I think, most represented. But it, there is some variation of the story all throughout uh, Latin America. But I would say Mexico and the Southwest, um, you know, because it's hard proximity to Mexico. Um, that's where, you know, that's where predominantly that story is kind of like mostly aligned with and mostly told. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that folklore is a cooler way to pass down history. Oh, yeah. I've always really enjoyed folklore because it, I think you get just a better picture of society and what makes that particular society uneasy. Um, you know, if we're talking about uh, strictly spooky folklore, yeah. it's, you know, looking at monster theory, all the things that scare us are really just symbols of cultural unease. So yeah. folklore is, it's, it's so important for us to not only, you know, keep these stories alive, but also to understand the historical and cultural implications of these stories. Yeah. You know, oral history and the passing down of these, these folk tales are important as well, because, you know, you don't need to know how to read. You don't need to know how to write. You just need to know how to listen to understand them. And I think there's something so special about stories that you're able to understand quickly and you can learn from that has so much power over how we live our lives. And there's something really special about that. If not a little spooky in and of itself. Um, yeah, I yeah. think, I don't know. There's, and especially how like this story, when I was doing research on it, I learned that it was, you know, mostly from Mexico and, and the Southwestern um, United States, which was formerly Mexico. So that makes sense, but you're, you're not Mexican. So even that, how that transcends cultures, I think is really special and fascinating. Yeah. Well, for the, you know, for the, the listeners at home, I'm Dominican. Um, and <laughs> my, I'm first generation because my, my parents were born there and they came over uh, to the United States when they were in their teens. <laughs> You know, we had our own version of it and it was passed down, you know, it was passed down to me and hopefully I can pass it down to, you know, my children. And I think also something like this also is a further testament to kind of the, the diaspora of Latin Americans, you know, that we're just kind of, even though we're all over, I mean, we're all a bit different. It's like, there's so many ways that we are similar 
you know, when, when we pass these on to future generation, those future generations almost always have their own spin on it and have their mm. own way of portraying that story. And we always see it in the way that it's represented in horror movies. So I'm a big horror movie fan. <laughs> Not surprising. Yes. <laughs> uh, so the, the film that I mentioned earlier, The Curse of La Llorona, actually takes place yes. in the late 70s in L.A., is it a mo- it's a modern film, right? They made it recently. Yeah. Yes, it's a modern okay. film. They made it in twenty nineteen. Okay. Whenever someone does a version of it, it's interesting to see how they what, what's their take on it. So I, I assume you've seen this latest version, and I know there are a couple of film adaptations. So can you walk us through maybe that film version and your experience watching the film and how it related to you and Maybe other people? Yes. That you were with? I'll try not to spoil it. So in this particular telling of the story, it kind of starts off in 1673 Mexico. Oh, it goes way back. Yeah, it goes way, way back. And it kind of shows like a traditional, you know, mother violently drowning her children in a stream. And, you know, child tries to run away, but the mother catches him and drowns him. But then, you know, 300 years later, in 1973, the main character, she's a caseworker. A large part of her job is, you know, going to the people that are in her case spot, like casework. Her course, like, you know, profile, like going to go check on them. Like, she's just investigating kind of all these weird cases. So a large part of this is that she goes to, to do a wellness check for, a, for one of her clients because her children are, uh, you know, they're marked as, like, fluent, like, they're not going to school. And, you know, she finds the children behind a locked door. And so ah. the, the woman, the woman that's being investigated, attacks her, attacks the caseworker, and she's taken away with okay. the police. So they're, they're telling the caseworker to keep them locked in the room so they're protected. But instead she takes them to the child services shelter. And once they're there, they're attacked by the spirit of La Llorona. Oh my god. So it's like they're still like they have to like, you know, the way that they're doing it is like you need to be literally hidden under lock and key so that way the spirit doesn't find you and drags you. But I will say though, my favorite, favorite rendition of La Llorona in the modern telling was this mm-hmm. film it was a uh, la llorona and it takes place in guatemala okay it's like loosely based off of real facts so like obviously Ooh. this particular story didn't happen but they use the backdrop of the trial of a brutal guatemalan dictator okay this actually happened in guatemala there was a dictator that orchestrated the genocide of native mayans and Ugh. so he got tried and convicted but the guilty verdict was overturned because of a technicality. Uh. And because he's because their reasoning was that he's old and senile, and so they return him to his home. That's awful. And he, him and his family have to hide out there, becoming more like increasingly like erratic and senile. And so a young woman named Alma comes to work for them, and she ends up, you know, ends up you know coming out that she is a spirit. And I think what my favorite thing about it was that this movie, this rendition of it, is less of the traditional 
jump scare horror. And it's more of that the director uses this old folklore, not to scare us per se, but to show us how how we are complicit in the oppression of others. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I don't love a, a <laughs> yeah. complicit in depression, but I love that. That's not what I'm saying. But I love that he was able to use something that's familiar to point out injustice. I think that's super effective. Yeah. And I, wow. I, I've absolutely, that's, my, that's honestly my favorite rendition of the story. When did that come out? So that came out in 2020. Um, oh, so that just came out. Yes. Yes. Because it was. It was a, um, there's a streaming service called Shudder and it's just, it's like Netflix, but for, uh, horror movies <laughs> and it's a Shudder and it's a Shudder original and I was streaming on there and I'm like, I have to watch okay. it for that was so cool. And it definitely has become like one of my favorites just because of how, uh, how untraditional of a horror movie it is. As you know, like I, and as my listeners know by this point, like I, Gosh, scary movies and I don't go so well together at all. So I really think learning about these stories in this way for me helps me understand why people are into scary stories because like the meat and potatoes of it is is like so fascinating. Just wanted to put that out there. Also, brief tangent. Can we talk just for like 1.5 seconds? How ridiculous it is that we have all these streaming services now and we have to buy all these streaming services and it's so much harder to pirate stuff. I don't condone pirating. I don't condone breaking the law, but like seriously, like what's going on? Of course. It's so hard just to get something on one thing. So you find yourself, oh, I really want to watch this particular show. They don't have it on this streaming site. You know, and then by the time you finally catch up to see everything that you want to see, you know, you're subscribed to like five different streaming sites. Yeah. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were saying like, it's the curse of the free trial. Cause they'll go on, they'll get the, the free trial. Like I did this too. And then you just forget you signed up for a free trial and you're like, Oh my gosh, I just wasted so much money on free trials that expired. And now I have to cancel all these subscriptions. That is its own horror story. That is a that is the real horror story of 2020. Draining our bank accounts on dumb movie subscriptions. Yes. Listen, I I'm like I'm so bad when it comes to this because I'm like let me get the let me get the 30 day free trial. So yeah. Anyway, but off of that tangent, there are a lot of movie adaptations that I saw. If our listeners want to learn more about this story how would you suggest they learn more you mentioned two movies already is there any other film adaptations or any other places in pop culture i think there's a maybe an episode of buzzfeed unsolved that talks about la llorona yeah definitely um the episode of buzzfeed unsolved i think does a pretty good job of explaining it in a way that makes sense so definitely watch that if you can. It's such a short story. All you really need to do is just get the basic like understanding of it. Um, and unfortunately, there's not too much research and literature about um, kind of how in-depth we went in this episode <laughs> about it. It is out there. It's just a little bit more difficult to find. But if you're like someone who's like, I have absolutely 
no idea what this is, I would highly suggest watching that BuzzFeed Unsolved. BuzzFeed Unsolved. Because if you watch the movie first, without even re- researching anything else, uh, you're not going to understand the context of the movies. Right. It seems like there's like a lot of nuance that you should... Yeah, and well, of course, like as we always do, we're going to link all the movies in the show notes. We're going to link all of the resources that we have for you in the show notes. So you can always just click some of those. Um, a lot of websites, some JSTOR, JSTOR articles, big dorks here. Absolutely. Um, is there anything else you want to say about this story and maybe how it makes you feel on the edge? Um, yeah. I guess it makes you feel on the edge because of, you know, how long it's been around and how, how much its legacy has permeated, especially, you know, when we add the layers to it and really dissect it and look at it through different analytical lens that kind of further adds to that, you know, that on edge feel that this thing it's going to be <laughs> you know i'm yeah. pretty sure this folklore hopefully will outlast me by by you know hundreds and hundreds of years we're just starting to realize or at least i am how important this story is to the culture yeah. and to so many other things you know the fact that this story is at its core about a woman who has nothing else to live for is so heartbroken that she goes to the extreme to murder her children is not only some fascinating folklorish tale. It's also something that we see replicated like in the news and like stuff like this happens like in real life. And I think maybe that is what's scariest to me is like, we can talk about it all we want in this metaphorical way and its impact but then at the end of the day like there are people like this like this kind of horrifying stuff like happens in real life and I think that to me is kind of the scariest part everything that happens in horror is merely just a reflection of the things that scare us in real life oof and that's why I don't watch scary movies. <laughs> you know, sometimes sometimes the scariest monsters are within ourselves. Yeah. Uh absolutely. <laughs> All right. So this has been I feel like lovely is always the wrong term to use this season. Like it's it's not been lovely, but it's been wonderful to talk to you specifically. Yeah. And um first of all, you should know that Nicole is such a wonderful human being in so many ways and she's really been like a big sis to me. So it's been awesome talking to her. I want you to, we always want our guests to promote what they're working on. And so um, Nicole's working on some really cool things right now. So why don't you talk a little bit about that and throw out some of your apps. So uh, one of the things that I've been working on and I'm very excited about, I am involved in this thing called The Plastics. And they are a supporter group. You know, we seek to promote support amplify for and advocate for women and LGBTQIA plus supporters 
of MLS, USL, and NWSL. Can you just tell us what that means? Like what those abbreviations stand for? <laughs> so MLS is major is major league soccer. It's all soccer. It's all soccer. And so the NWSL is the women's soccer league. Um, the USL is the kind of the lower division. It's the United States League. So MLS is like the top league of the United States. And then it's USL. They're like a lower division. And then the NWSL is just the women's league. So in soccer culture, there's a lot of gatekeeping and a lot of misogyny. And a lot of that, I think, prevents people from marginalized groups from wanting to participate in soccer. And that makes me so sad. And that makes a lot of us sad. So... I was asked to become a moderator for this group and we've been doing a lot of cool work. Like we've done Twitch streams to raise money. Uh, We have, we collaborated with um, a lower division team called Motoric and they're actually based in Maryland. Hey! Yeah. And so we collabed with them to release these really cool jerseys that are black and they have skulls on them. And they have like pink trim. And, you know, we also have this really cool kind of offshoot called Operation Fierce Love, where we raised a ton of money to provide queer members of the plastics community with a jersey if they can't afford one. So fantastic. If you want to you want to follow us and see all the cool stuff that we do, we are at the plastics underscore sg and yeah we we, i think we do a lot of cool stuff and we're very we're very like boisterous and loud and bold and you know we really do stand up for everybody and i like to use the term aggressively inclusive i love that yeah (laughs) i love that Awesome. Everyone should go follow them. You're on Twitter, right? Yes. Twitter, Instagram. Give us a follow. Awesome. We'll include that in our show notes as well. And um, do you want to throw out your personal ads while you're here? Yeah. Follow me at XO underscore Glen Coco. That is my at for Twitter and my at for Instagram. Um, my day job is just, you know, boring commodities stuff, but, um, this is my, you know, this is really, this type of stuff is really my bread and butter. (laughs) Love learning new things. I love reading. Um, so yeah, you know, if you want to say hello or want to talk to me more about it, uh, don't be afraid to hit me up as long as you're nice. (laughs) Yes, please. Only nice people. We have really nice. We have really nice yes. listeners. Yes. <laughs> so, and if and y'all know if you want to, I don't know, contact me. You can do that on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at yes. just the underscore Italian. So, yeah. Anyway, thank you, Nicole, for coming on. This has been this has been a great time. I'm like so happy that you asked me to come on. <laughs> I love I do love the podcast. I thought it was I love it. I think it's really cool. And I was like super excited to 
be on it and kind of talk about some of the stuff that, you know, occupies the space in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) But thank (laughs) y'all. You're the best. Once Upon a Time, a storytelling podcast, was produced by Talia Smith and Emily Joba. You can buy us a coffee to support this podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash onceuponatimepc. Our guest today was Nicole Arias, and our story was La Llorona. Our featured artist this week was Christina Martinez. You can check out their work on Instagram and on our show notes. Music is Photos of Murder by John Bartman. Our Instagram is at a storytelling podcast, and our email is a storytelling podcast at gmail.com. You can listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We only have two more episodes left of season two, so thank you so much for listening so far. Links to all of our resources are in the show notes and on our website. The end. <laughs>